0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, January 14th, 2011. Got taken out of the fight for a couple of days. Guess even pirates can get food poisoning. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of people just making up the craziest things. It's as if they really believe that the things that burble up from within them are to be uh, well understood as God's truth over and against what God has written in His Word unbelievable. As a result of it, we got a lot of cleanup work to do. Now, it's one thing when this is happening outside of the church. The problem is, is that uh, there seems to be an epidemic of this happening inside the church. So we've tried to provide a biblical counterbalance, if you would. Now, I have been out of the studio for two days. Two days ago, I got violently, violently ill. Um, migraine headache, severe fever, major intestinal crampage, just probably one of the most miserable states i've ever been in usually i can work through like a cold or something like that well it turns out i was uh, suffering from food poisoning apparently i ate some bad kimchi or something and uh, and as a result of it i had a very very horrible violent reaction against it and uh, and had to take it took a little bit of time for itself to work through my system and hi, yi, yi, was that it was just awful So uh, uh, I'm I'm finally uh, feeling more human today. I you know uh, uh, the day one I you know obviously I felt like I was mostly dead. Uh, Yesterday I probably felt about forty percent improvement. Today I maybe about eighty percent. I'm not I I still got about twenty percent of the way to go. Uh, You know it. I've noticed that when you don't eat for a couple of days, the first time you actually try food. <laughs> it just gives you a shot to your system. It's like to the point where you're sitting there going, "Whoa!" <laughs> I felt like I was having a Patricia King download as you know, as the nutrients from uh, the food that I was eating actually got into my bloodstream. It's like, "Whoa! Where'd that come from?" <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, which kind of goes back to some of the points that I make here at Fighting for the Faith. Over and again, these folks claim that they're getting downloads from God. They may actually be, in fact, suffering from just low blood sugar or a really bad metabolism. So anyway, uh, it's good to be back. I just feel just like the pile is so huge. The pile is so large, so ginormous that there is just no way that I'm going to be able to get to it all. So I've decided that for my own sanity and my own stress level, I'm just not going to sweat it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start where I think I need to start, and I'm going to finish where I need to finish today, and then just keep working through it. All, this stuff ain't going nowhere. And uh, so, I mean, as a result of it, you know, you're know, you going to think, well, okay, well, where are we going today? What are you going to do on today's program, Chris? You've been out of the fight for a couple of days. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Uh <laughs> We're going to begin today's program uh probably spend the the better part of this segment uh here in the first half of the first hour uh discussing uh Rick Warren's uh soon to be well tomorrow is they're going to be releasing what they call the Daniel plan. And uh Rick Warren the Orange County Register has an article that uh reads Dr uh sorry Rick Warren and Dr Oz to partner on health plan and there's a lot going on here and uh and so what's funny is is that uh the one thing I've learned about Rick Warren is that Rick Warren is a master propagandist or uh his uh, uh or the public relations firm that uh that he's hired does a really good job at uh, propaganda in the vein of Edward Bernays. Yeah, those of you who are familiar with Edward Bernays will know what I'm talking about. He's written a f- um, well, very famous book entitled "Propaganda," and uh, Rick Warren, over and again, uh, he, he's jettisoned biblical Christianity, completely mishandles and butchers God's word uh, in order to. Well, he calls it meeting the felt needs of seekers, but uh, the reality is is that. This all falls into the classic propaganda categories uh, that uh, have been used in the past to uh, sell such products as a hearty breakfast, uh, cigarettes, and other things. And uh, so Rick Warren, I think, is a master propagandist. And this is just another example of uh, of Rick Warren propaganda in action. And what what gets lost in the mix? Biblical Christianity, Christ and him crucified for our sins. And uh, as a result of Rick Warren's misguided, at best, uh, misguided approaches, he you know basically this he feels that he has the freedom to approach Christianity and do the pastoral job according to any methodology he seems fit. You know that would be the methodology that does the 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 greatest uh, well is the most pragmatically able to attract a large audience. And so uh, we're going to be talking about that today uh and spending some time kind of unpacking what Rick Warren is doing take a look at the book of Daniel to see how that plays into this i mean all of this prior to the release of it and you're thinking well okay chris didn't you say that uh, you can't judge a book by its cover absolutely yeah, remember the Almighty Bible, and we were talking about it here, and I put out an audience question, is there anything inherently wrong with the Almighty Bible? Now, it, as it turns out, I've uh, received a copy of the Almighty Bible, at least uh, the, uh, a portion of the book of Genesis, and having reviewed what I've seen, I, there's nothing wrong with this thing at all. I mean, it's got really cool pictures, and the, story is actually, the stories in, in the Almighty Bible are faithful to the biblical text. Um, having now looked at it, the inside of it, I can say there's nothing inherently wrong with this at all. In fact, it might be a good biblical tool for those who are more drawn to icon rather than text, although you need to you need to teach both you know, to people like that. But anyway, <clears throat> coming back to this, we've got more than just... Um, we've got more than with Rick Warren and what's going on there at Saddleback in this decade of destiny, we have far more than just... Uh, a press release that talks about a book that we haven't seen the cover on With Rick Warren, over and again, we've seen the inside of, of his ministry, how he mangles and butchers God's Word, and uh, what he's up to now is just absolutely uh, horrendous in this sense, and that is is that this isn't biblical Christianity, and I'll explain how that all plays out, especially his partnership with Dr. Uh, uh, Mehmet Oz. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So... And then depending on time here, uh, there's a couple of videos that I would like to uh to cover, but I'm going to I'm gonna kind of reserve I'm not even gonna talk about those right now until we get through this section regarding uh the forthcoming Daniel plan that's gonna be released at Saddleback tomorrow. And uh and Dr. Rick Warren's um partnership with Mehmet Oz and what that all means. So For lack of a better way of putting it, I don't know if we're going to get to the other stuff. And then today, our sermon review in hour number two is is, is all about shattered dreams. Yeah, could you imagine that? uh, Yeah, shattered dreams. Uh, Byron Bledsoe, C3 Church, Orlando, Florida. uh, We're going to be listening to his recent sermon preached about shattered dreams. So, uh, in fact, if you want to look ahead in your Bibles and have that ready, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 Shattered dreams. Yeah, so uh, lots and lots and lots going on here, lots to talk about. But uh, uh, let me see if I can cue up our music so that we can dive into the program proper. From the Orange County Register, headline reads, Rick Warren, Dr. Oz to partner on health plan. I'm just going to kind of kick off the, uh, the full discussion on this particular topic. Uh, uh, the Lake Forest, California, pledging to lose 90 pounds in 2011, Pastor Rick Warren will host three health experts, including the stars of the uh, star of the Doctor. Oz Show at Saddleback Church on Saturday to launch a year-long church-wide fitness plan. Now, I want to point something out here. Dr. Rick Warren uh, Rick Warren, he's going to be l- kicking off a year-long fitness plan and I'm glad to hear that he's uh, pledged to lose 90 pounds personally Having met him, I understand uh, just how overweight he is. I've talked about it and commented on it in this program and understand I'm speaking as somebody who struggles with uh, my own weight issues and uh, and know how difficult it is to do this That's not what I'm uh, critiquing him at the problem here is, um, is that this is part of a church-wide fitness campaign, and he's partnering with Dr. Oz, okay? Well, let me give you a little bit more details. Let me continue reading from the Orange County Register. Dr. Mehmet Oz is a cardiac surgeon and a TV show host. He'll be working also with Dr. Mark Hyman, an expert in metabolism, and Dr. Daniel Amman, a best-selling author, and clinical professor of psychiatry at UC Irvine, they will help Warren kick off, the quote, the Daniel Plan, based on Daniel 1, in which the prophet Daniel opts out for vegetables and water rather than defile himself with the royal food and wine. The effort is part of Saddleback's Decade of Destiny, a 10-year plan To expand the ministry, the plan includes an element of personal growth meant to equip parishioners to succeed in seven areas of life. They are the spiritual area, the physical area, the financial area, the relational area, the vocational area, the emotional area, and the mental area. Quote, the Bible says that God wants us to be as healthy as physically as you are spiritually, Warren said in a video announcing Saturday's event. If you don't, you won't have a zippity-doo-dah to the rest. The The plan will help you feel better, have more energy, get in shape, and use your body the way God wants you to. We will be held accountable on how we were stewards of the body that he gave us. Tell you what, rather than having me quote Rick Warren, why don't we just let Rick Warren uh, explain it to you the way he explained it to the folks at Saddleback when he announced this. Here's Rick Warren.
1: Happy New Year, everybody. Are you everybody ready to lose weight and get in shape? All right. Now Okay,
0: now as you're listening to this, ask yourself this question. Is this part of the church's Christian Bible study curriculum? Listen in.
1: On January 15th, which is a Saturday, we're going to do the kickoff of our Daniel plan, which over 3,000 of you signed up to do on uh, getting healthy. And it's a plan put together by three of the best-known doctors in America, Dr. Mehmet Oz, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Mark Hyman. They've all written the best-selling books. And on that day, they're coming to do a seminar at Saddleback on your health. And then, yeah, you can clap for that. And then, boy, that was pathetic. Okay. And then, uh, and then, yeah. Woo! The following week, we start a six-week series in our small groups. Okay, so not only are they going to kick
0: off the Daniel plan tomorrow, Saturday the 15th, But they're going to have six weeks of small group Bible study, listen.
1: On getting healthy, on the Daniel plan, God's prescription for your health, which includes excerpts. I've already taped it. I taped it this week, six-week Bible study. And uh, then for the technical parts of getting healthy, uh, in that video, in that small group material, will be material by Dr. Mark Amon, Dr. Daniel Hyman, and Dr. Mehmet Oz. So you're gonna have these three guys in your small groups. Nowhere else in the world would you get these three doctors to be personally overseeing uh, your health plan for the next year, but it's all part of Decade of Destiny. And so you make sure that on that Saturday, you're saving Saturday, uh, January 15th for a seminar, and then we'll begin our small group curriculum series uh, on uh, God's, uh, God's plan for our health.
0: So that's Rick Warren announcing it at Saddleback Church during sermon time there at Saddleback. Um, basically, uh, so the, the the plan is that they're going to uh, kick off the Daniel plan. It's supposedly a six week long Bible study, and uh, Mehmet Oz and Amen and this other guy are going to be there to give the technical aspects of you know what it takes to um uh, <clears throat> to get healthy. But let me go back to the. Um, this uh, what Rick Warren was quoted as saying in um, in this video in the Orange County Register. Quote: The Bible says that God wants us to be as healthy physically as you are spiritually. Warren said in a video announcing Saturday's event, "If you don't, you won't have a zippity doo dah to the rest of uh, to the rest. Uh, the plan will help you feel better, have more energy, get in shape, and use your body the way God wants you to. We will be held accountable on how we." were stewards of the body that he gave us which leads to the question uh immediately will Rick Warren be held to account by God for how he used the body that God gave him Rick Warren has been overweight as long as I've known him to be in the uh, public spotlight just you know just a question notice the law emphasis not the gospel emphasis the plan will include a 52 week customized program, a curriculum for small groups, an interactive website with meal menus, uh, exercise, and shopping tips. There will also be monthly conference calls for encouragement, citing high rates of childhood obesity and statistics that show that 76% of Americans. Our overweight Warren said that he can only ask his membership to get healthy if he focused on his own health and fitness. Over the last 30 years, he said he's gained three pounds each year. I put myself under the best care and asked these men to develop a program for me to lose weight and to get healthy, Warren said. Nowhere else in America would you get one of these doctors to be your personal consultant, much less get all three to monitor your progress for an entire year. Warren also encouraged his congregation to get the word out to friends and neighbors. This is God's prescription for your health. He said this is the greatest opportunity for you to introduce friends to Saddleback Church through a non-threatening event. So, that's how they're billing it, okay? Now, there's several big problems here, several huge problems and where to begin is like the question. Uh, number one. Here's the question I have: Um, will people who die obese will they go to heaven or hell? If a Christian dies and they're overweight, will they go to heaven or hell? You're sitting there. Why are you asking this question, Chris? Well, because the way this whole thing is framed, if God's going to hold us accountable for how you know whether or not we're overweight, then the question is: Is that is this a mortal sin or is it a venial sin? You're thinking, well, Chris, that sounds like Roman Catholic categories. Yeah, I understand that. But Rick Warren has made it perfectly clear as to how he was quoted in the Orange County Register. Quote, we will be held accountable on how we were stewards of the body he gave us. So if we are not good stewards of the body that God gave us, if, you know, for instance, I mean, let's. Let's come on, let's get serious here, folks. I mean, we've all been around Christian circles long enough to know that if somebody you know let's say that somebody who you thought was a clean and and a clean Christian person dies in an auto accident and you found out that their blood alcohol level was two point one, you have those doubts in your mind as to whether or not they're even going to go to heaven, right because well, they were drunk and then they Died in an auto accident can can somebody who's drunk who is drunk at the time of death go to heaven so the the logical question now comes up if you die and you don't have the perfect body mass index yeah if your fat co- content as a as a percentage of your body weight isn't the right amount is that a sin that' can, that'll send you to hell? That's the question I have, especially if you're a Christian. So is the only way that you can then make it into heaven is if you apply yourself properly to the correct exercise techniques and diet plans in order to, you know, so that you can get your your body mass index down to the right numbers? I mean, is that, I mean, mean, if you're going to be held accountable, what do you mean by that? Where does the Bible explain what the punishment is for those who haven't properly taken care of their body? Hmm? You know, just I'm I'm just asking. You'll notice here that uh, the emphasis that I'm pointing to is an emphasis on a correct incorrect understanding of the purpose of the law. And Rick Warren is very heavy on the law and uh on the gospel yeah not so much over and again it makes you wonder if if uh the gospel even applies to christians the way he misuses it and then we've got this other problem this other problem is is that rick warren says that they're going to launch a, that they're going to launch a 6 week series on what's called the daniel plan apparently he and dr oz and others have worked up this health and fitness regimen that is supposed to be a non-threatening thing for people, um, it Based and this is all supposedly based on Daniel chapter 1. Well, now we've got a problem. Because if you read Daniel chapter 1, the one thing that you find out is that Daniel chapter 1 isn't about giving us a health and fitness plan. It's not about a Bible dietary supplement or a Bible... Daniel chapter 1 isn't at all about how to achieve optimal health. That isn't the purpose of Daniel chapter 1. In fact, Daniel chapter 1 points us to the Mosaic law and in uh, and its dietary laws, but that's not where Rick Warren goes with this. Already in calling it the Daniel plan, we've got a problem. And then thirdly, and the bigger issue is that Dr. Oz is part of a cult. He is a cultist. He's not a Christian. He is, part, he, he is a follower of a philosopher slash mystic by the name of Swedenborg. And I'll get into that in just a second. So we've got all kinds of problems now regarding this so-called Daniel plan that's going to be launched at Saddleback Church tomorrow. Um, to begin with, improper in, in, in use of law and gospel, twisting of Daniel chapter one, and syncretistically working with people who are cultists who aren't even Christian, which then begs the question: Is this this Daniel plan even Christian at all? With what's going on, that, you know, the way it's being packaged and sent out to people. Now, notice this is great propaganda. Yeah, Rick Warren is doing a fine job of selling Christianity, per se, if you have to put Christianity in quotes, with the idea, well, it's all about you having the optimal life. Basically selling Christianity based upon the idea that uh, the fruits of repentance can can all be yours without even saying the word repentance, Christ, uh, forgiveness of sins, or anything like that, you know? That you know, so then the the next logical question comes up is, is is it if you do have the correct body mass index, are you holier and more sanctified than um, you know the schlub over there who well suffers from obesity, and you know of course you know it, they suffer because of their own sin and laziness, but I mean so obviously I mean the, the answer to the question is well yeah, I mean if you're thin you're holy right. So when you're walking down the street, you know, let's say you take a, decide to take a trip to New York City, and you're walking down the street and you see all the beautiful, skinny people out there, and you know, like the uh, the garment district or you know the the uh, place where you know all the dis- high end designers are, and you know, and, and you look at the fashion magazines, and you look at all those people who are as skinny as a rail. You know what you should conclude? Well, they they must be holy, because look how skinny they are. That God must be blessing them, because look how holy they are. See how obedient they are? You get what I'm saying? we got so much more that we need to talk about on this particular issue, but I've got to pay some bills. So if you would like to um, email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so at my email address, talkback at or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We got a lot more to talk about on this topic.
2: about Customer Service, this is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh... Never leaves me nor forsakes me And will take me to heaven when I die Oh, I'm sorry, sir We don't stock that Jesus here You'll have to go somewhere else To have that Jesus Well I guess I'll just stick with the one I got Since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that?
0: Warning, it doesn't matter what America's pastor says, Daniel 1 is not about some diet plan for you to get healthy and fit. Need to remind you all: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach. ...to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by making a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button... Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, kind of building up from here, I I don't know whether I should talk about the Swedenborg cult or go to the passages first. Tell you what, I'll go to the passages first. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1. I would like to read this passage to you and kind of show you what's going on here so that you can see that Daniel chapter 1 isn't about some kind of a fitness strategy for your life. Let me read, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vas- uh, vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God, lower case. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, uh, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belt-Shazar, Hananiah he named Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, here's the question that comes up immediately. What does it mean to not defile yourself? What is being referred to here? Why is Daniel putting up a fit? I mean... Here he has the opportunity to eat the best food offered in the land of Babylon, right? I mean, the choicest cuts from the king's table. What's this defile stuff all about? You're not sure what's being referred to here? Go back into the Mosaic law and what God commanded Israel regarding what they should eat and shouldn't eat. You have to look at and understand this in light of the Mosaic law. Kosher laws. Okay. In other words, the things that were being served at the king's table, some of it weren't kosher. Some of it were, uh, well, um, contrary, you know, God's law forbade them from eating it. Okay. Now, you'll notice here that, um, let me go back just a smidge here. In describing what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like um the, the verse 4 chapter 1 verse 4 now when i mean seriously you got to you got to look at it this way were daniel hananiah mishael and azariah um peop, guys who could have been contestants on the biggest loser prior to their being picked to serve in the court of uh, nebuchadnezzar no okay verse 4 They were youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were already fit. If they were guys who were overweight, who should have been contestants on The Biggest Loser, then uh, they wouldn't have been picked for the assignment. They were already young, fit, strapping Handsome, unblemished young men. They were the finest specimens of, uh, you know, of the house of Judah. You understand what I'm saying here? Yeah, they were picked because they were this. So Daniel, one of the finer specimens of the house of Judah, <clears throat> who wasn't a contestant on The Biggest Loser, by the way, he d- resolved that he would not defile himself. That's the important word with the king's food. So, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor, and God gave Daniel compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "'I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink.'" For why should he say that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So this, you know, he said, Dale says, listen, I can't defile myself with this food. Don't, don't, please don't make me do this. And the guy is all, you know, listen, you know, we don't want you guys to get sick or ill or anything like that. Right. You know, um, so, you know, so I mean, the king is going to get really angry at me if you guys get, you know, if you end up being like sickly. All right? I fear the Lord. So I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink for what, uh, why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king. So then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, "Test your servants for ten days." Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So, here's what Daniel knows: is that uh, the meats, the meats there at the at the king's table, yeah, not kosher. Now they haven't been bled properly. Uh, they're, they're probably animals that should not be eaten, according to the Mosaic law. So the only thing that's safe for them to eat that's kosher are the vegetables. And so he, uh, basically Daniel says, put us on a vegan diet, all right, because that's the stuff that's kosher that's coming from the table. And then, you know, let your let the appearance, you know, judge us, our appearance based on the others, okay? Okay. So the, um, the eunuch listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10th day, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. <laughs> they got fat eating veggies. Okay, So the steward took away their food and the wine uh, they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead as these four youths God gave them learning and skill in all literature so there you go that's the that's basically all of that's discussed in uh, you know what's going on there it uh, in Daniel 1 does Daniel chapter 1 give us a diet that we're supposed to apply to our lives notice they got fatter eating the vegetables but the reason why the the, the problem exists is because they didn't want to defile themselves, and the defilement goes back to the Mosaic kosher laws. So, yeah, we've got a problem. Calling it the Daniel One Plan is kind of to take things out of context. Now, here's the other thing: is just that you know there's there's a there's a kind of an anti syncretistic message going on here. You know, they can't just do the things that these pagans are doing. Just to blend in with the pagans, they have to stand out against their false practices, their false diet, their false doctrines, their false gods. You know, that's part of what's going on here, and this plays out in the, the subsequent chapters in the book of Daniel, which leads to the other big problem. I read from a press release that was sent out, which I have followed up on, by the way, and have found that what's being said here in this press release— that was put out by a christian investigator by the name of Steve Mc, uh, McConkey okay i don't know about steve mcconkey's ministry but i can tell you that what he says in this press release i've checked out the facts and it's true okay mcconkey points out the fact that dr oz is a member of a cult called the swedenborg cult and uh, he sent out uh, mcconkey sent out a um, press release On January 13th, 2011, basically calling out this fact. Here we go. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin, January 13th, 2011. On January 15th, that's tomorrow, Rick Warren will kick off a 52-week Daniel plan to become healthier with Dr. Mehmet Oz, a follower of of cult leader Emanuel Swedenborg. According to Warren's website, his church will host a 52-week course to stress losing weight and becoming healthier, and uh, the kickoff event will include Dr. Mehmet Oz, Dr. Daniel Amman, and Dr. Mark Hyman, all three have Eastern spiritual connections. Dr. Mehmet Oz is a follower of Emanuel Swedenborg, according to the New Church website. He appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show and is a professor of cardiac surgery at Columbia University. He is inspired by Emanuel Swedenborg, a cult leader who died in 1772 in Sweden. Swedenborgianism has up to 50,000 members worldwide, according to the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry website. They deny the atonement, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and they deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. They believe that all religions lead to God and that Christianity must go through a rebirth. Also, they do not believe in a personal devil. They believe the Bible is not inspired and that when people die, they become an angel or an evil spirit. Emanuel Swedenborg had a vision in 1745 where he supposedly saw creatures crawling on the walls. He believed God then appeared to him as a man and told him that he would be the person to promote the new teachings to the world. The other two speakers, Dr. Daniel Amon and Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, Dr. Aman teaches tantric sex, a Hindu mystical approach to sex. He teaches Eastern religious meditation and energy-based uh, Reiki and New Age practice. And Dr. Mike Hyman promotes mystical meditation based upon Buddhist practices. Does anyone have a problem with that? So, so here's the deal: Rick Warren is launching this, you know. Daniel Plan, fifty-two weeks, where there people at Saddleback Church, you know, you know, can have their health monitored in this plan put together called the Daniel Plan, and all the guys who put it together are of um, dubious spiritual um, practice and belief, most notably Doctor Oz. So, which leads to the question: Why did Doctor Rick Warren pick Doctor Oz to? Yeah, you know why? Because oh well, you know, doctor. Everyone loves his program. He's like the the doctor of the moment, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got a very popular program. He's like He's the new Doctor Phil, and he's a you know, and all that kind of stuff. But notice, remember when I played the video from Doctor Warren, you know, announcing this to Saddleback, that that their small group studies for the next six weeks at Saddleback Church will feature Dr. Oz. So you're going to go to if you attend Saddleback Church and you attend their small group studies for the next 6 weeks, your Bible study will include the teachings, not spiritual teachings, but the health teachings. But I mean, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter how you lose weight or whatever, but it, you'll get the you'll get the health teachings in your Bible study. Of a man who is part of a cult that denies the Trinity, denies the penal substitutionary atonement, denies the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that syncretism? Is that what Christian pastors are supposed to do? So the one thing we can really figure out even before the Daniel plan is announced, number one... It's not biblical because when you read Daniel one in context, uh, Daniel one doesn't give us a plan for making ourselves leaner. If anything, when you read the passage, when you read Daniel one in context, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Belshazzar, Daniel, Hananiah, yeah, all those guys, well, they looked fatter after they um, they they did their ten day diet. They looked fatter, not skinnier. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, Daniel one is not about giving us some plan for our life. So this is a supreme twisting of God's word. So what's going to be taught at Saddleback, you know, this whole Daniel plan thing. This isn't even Christianity. This is a supreme distraction away from the cross. Now, I understand obesity is a problem in the United States. It's a big problem. But the solution to the problem is to not, is not syncretism, is not to water down or misuse the Word of God, but to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, so that people would see that it is sinful of them to mistreat the body that God has given them, that they would repent, and be forgiven for their sins and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. All of this that is going on there at Saddleback is one big public relations piece of propaganda designed to somehow get more people to go to a Saddleback service. At either Saddleback and Lake Forest or one of their multi-sites popping up like magic mushrooms all over Southern California. But the one thing we can cert- would say with certainty is that this whole thing, not any of it, is really, truly sound biblically. And not any, I mean, the guys who are part of it, I mean, that, that Rick Warren is promoting. I mean, what, excuse me, but are there no real Christians out there who understand anything about weight loss? Are there no Christian doctors out there who are capable of helping people lose weight? Why do we need to go to somebody who's a member of a cult? Why? I I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But Rick Warren really isn't about faithfully handling God's word. Rick Warren is about building his influence is about growing saddleback cuz he thinks by doing so he's building the kingdom of god but the reality is is that it doesn't matter how many people sign up for the daniel plan and if you die obese you can still go to heaven you know why cuz christ even died for that sin do you understand what i'm saying this is ridiculous and this goes back to the whole beginnings of this so called decade of destiny, I need to reread to you part of uh the Christian Post story that originally came out uh when um, uh, you know back in October when Rick Warren basically announced the decade of destiny listen to this it 's a complete confusion of law and gospel. This is from a, a, a Christian Post story written. On October 9th, 2010, the headline reads Rick Warren prepares Saddleback for the Decade of Destiny, a Decade of Blessings, uh, written by Audrey Barrick. Saddleback Church in Southern California is kicking off its Decade of Destiny this weekend in an effort to prepare mega church the mega church congregation to receive showers of God's blessings. Quote I want the next 10 years of your life to be the best 10 years of your life, Pastor Rick Warren told church attendees, quote, I want you to be more blessed and less stressed. I want God's blessing on every area of your life. The Decade of Destiny is a two-month spiritual growth campaign that is aimed at moving Christians forward in their faith walk. Warren acknowledged that as their pastor, the Bible holds him accountable for the congregation's spiritual growth. And I don't take that lightly, the well-known megachurch pastor said, along with helping believers come to a position of being blessable. The campaign will also lead the church to to be a blessing to the community." Let me read that sentence again, along with helping believers come to a position of being blessable. So apparently, it's up to you. I mean, if you want to receive God's showers of blessings, well, then you've got to do all the things necessary in order to be blessable, because God can't bless you unless you're blessable. And being blessable, well, that's all up to you. You see what's going on here? Continue. Let me continue. Quote, God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others, not just so that you can have some fat... Cat and self-centered, uh, be some fat cat and self-centered. Warren highlighted the decade of destiny campaign was first announced during Saddleback Church's 30th anniversary celebration in April. Over the next ten years, the church of some 22,000 weekly attendees will enhance its programs and operations and expand its campuses and small groups. And by the end of the year, the mega church plans to have ten different Saddleback locations in Southern California. In preparation for the campaign, Warren studied every verse in the Bible that speak of speaks of God's blessings, and he first stressed that nobody does. Deserves his blessings. It's totally a gift. The pastor, uh, the pastor and best-selling author of the Purpose Driven Life, said he blesses because he's a good God, not because you're good. Moreover, God enjoys blessing his children. He added, God wants to bless you. He's not holding back. He's waiting on you. Though God's blessing cannot be earned, there is a premise to every promise. Warren noted, they're not automatic. He said of the blessings, there's a condition. God promises and actually guarantees that he will bless your life if you do what he says. That's a direct quote from Rick Warren. God will bless your life if you do what he says. That's called obedience. That's the law. Where's the cross? Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Rick Warren is off in law law land. L A W L A W. He is literally off in law law land. He's completely lost sight of the cross. Especially how the cross applies to Christians. Well, see, yeah. The reason you're not blessed is because, well, you're just not blessable. Now it's totally a gift. You know, God's blessings are totally a gift, but they're conditional. Yeah. You see, God wants to give you a gift, but there's strings attached. And see, here's the string. God wants to bless you. He wants to give you this gift, but, yeah, there's this one little stipulation. this some fine print, and that is that he can only give you the gift if you do what he says. Is that a gift at that point? Warren warned, quote, you can go through life and miss every blessing of God that he has intended for your life. Why? Because you're just not doing what he told you to do. The conditions to receiving God's blessings include, one, Meeting with God daily. Well, if you, see, that's the thing. If you don't meet with God daily, God can't bless you. Two, studying his word. Yeah, see, if you don't study his word, he can't bless you. Tithing. Yeah, see, if you don't give 10% off the gross, he can't help you. Three, uh, four, helping others in need. Yeah, if you're not doing that, then you can't be blessed. Uh, and the Five, four, I've lost count. Number Next one, sharing the good news, participating in fellowships such as small groups. Stressing the importance of relationships with other believers, Warren reminded the congregation that many of the blessings will come through other people. <sighs> A utter, incomplete, cataclysmic deception is going on there at Saddleback Church. Rick Warren is preaching the law, not the gospel. He's partnering with flat-out cultist heretics That's syncretistic at best. He's mangling God's Word and trying to create the illusion that Daniel chapter 1 is teaching us some kind of health and fitness diet that we can apply to our lives so that we can be blessable. And number three, I come back to the question that I asked early on in this uh, first hour. Is being overweight a mortal or is it a venial sin? Yeah, because according to Rick Warren, God's going to hold you accountable to what you did with this body. And, well, if God holds you accountable, then the question is, I mean, if you don't have the perfect body mass index, I had no idea that the Judgment Day would include a BMI index uh, review. If you don't have the proper body mass index at the point of your death, does that earn you hell? Or does that just take away from, well, you know, some of the rewards you would have received in heaven? Like, for instance, I mean, if you have a BMI, if you have the body mass index of like the perfect thing when you die, does that mean that you get an olympic size swimming pool in your mansion in heaven, or does it mean that you'll have to settle for a jacuzzi? You see, all of these questions need to be answered, because Rick Warren is not preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, nor is he preaching God's gifts He's preaching pure, unadulterated, strings-attached law and quid pro quo legalism. If you do this, then God will do that. God wants to give it to you as a gift, but there's all these conditions and you've got to obey him first. And again, I ask the question, how is any of this even sound credible coming from a man who for, what, the last 20 years has been overweight in a severe way? Won't God hold him accountable? Or, well, does the accounting only come into effect on the day you cross the finish line and actually die? I ask all these questions because these are logical questions to ask somebody who's teaching this as Christian doctrine, teaching this as if this is an important church-wide thing that Saddleback should be involved in and has made sure that it has made all of the papers, not only just the Orange County Register, but also the Christian Post, so that other churches stand up and take note and follow suit and do the same thing that Rick Warren is doing. Because believe me when I tell you, what's happening over there at Saddleback – This weekend, you know, with the kicking off of the Daniel plan, I don't—you can bet against me if you want, but I don't think it would be wise. Trust me when I tell you, by this time next year, there'll be thousands of churches who follow suit. Because how much do you want to bet this whole Daniel plan thing will be packaged in an easily— purchased and downloadable format that any church can strip out the Saddleback name and plug in their own brand and name and all that kind of stuff so that churches all across the country and the world can follow Saddleback's lead and do what Rick Warren has done and learn from and glean secondhand, the crumbs that come off of the table of Saddleback Church and can have Dr. Oz and Dr. Amon and these other guys helping the people in their congregations to be ready for their day of reckoning when they stand before God and God pulls up the score sheet and looks at the line item that says body mass index. Do you find that anywhere in the Bible? I don't. The God I read of in Scripture is the one who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified, died, and was buried for my sins and yours. He calls us not to an accounting of our lives, but for the forgiveness of our sins. For as David wrote in the Psalms, And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Not hearing about that, are we? Get your life together. Make yourself blessable. Oh, the blessings are a gift, but you have to obey first. Because if you don't, then God won't bless you. You know, if that were—seriously, that doesn't make any sense, and I'll tell you why. How is it that so many non-Christians seem to have, by worldly standards, a blessed life? I mean, just look at the movie stars and the actors and actresses that everybody writes the gossip columns about in TMZ and on People magazine and, you know, in the the, uh, Inquirer and the tabloids that are on the checkout stand. All the beautiful, skinny people— you know they're rich, they're happy, they're wealthy, they're skinny, they're popular by all the world standards. They're blessed. Should we then assume that they're just a bunch of people who are just obeying God's and that God and that they're blessable, that they've made themselves blessable, and that's why they're having all these blessings? Notice the blessings that Rick Warren, what he's teaching and preaching about, are temporal blessings, but the Christian faith doesn't offer temporal blessings. The Christian faith does promise this side of Christ's return that you might actually suffer temporal loss, suffering, persecution, and pain. But the thing that the Christian life offers, the things that the thing that Christ's death offers, is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Christians may not have temporal blessings this side of heaven. Is it me, or has Rick Warren gone to the dark side? I mean, what he's promoting sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel. And isn't it odd that he's so willing to work with people who are clearly not Christians in promoting his blessing message? Yeah, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's by accident at all. Alright, we're up on our second break, sermon review time when we come back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe.
0: This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. My apologies again for the um, shortness of the broadcasting week. I can guarantee you I can't make it up to you. I'll just have to move on. That's all I can do. Here we go. good the bad and uh, well the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service this sermon comes to us via c3 church orlando florida pastor byron bledsoe presiding the name of the sermon shattered dreams this is a perfect example of how not to read the bible the Bible is not promising you that God's going to place a dream in your heart and then see it to fruition. And isn't it doesn't teach you to stay the course or anything of the sort. Yeah, this is just really bad, narcissistic, me-centered teaching and preaching that completely mishandles the Word of God. By the way, the Bible's not about you. It's about what Jesus is doing for you, has done for you. Jesus himself makes it clear that the word of God is about him. Read the Gospel of John. Jesus chides the Pharisees, You earnestly search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And you refuse to come to me to have life. The Bible's about Jesus. Your role in this, you're part of the rebellious rabble. That's right. You were the one yelling while Jesus was on trial. You were screaming at the top of your lungs, crucify him. He's not worthy to live. That's your role. You want to see you in the scripture? That is your role. That was the role that you played. Give you another example. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. So, when you read the Bible as somehow being self actualizing and all about you reading and finding your purpose and all that kind of hoo ha, you're not reading the Bible correctly. In fact, you're missing the whole point. So, without any further ado, here's Byron Bledsoe Shattered Dreams.
3: The beginning of a year in the early days of the year, we think about if you're a Christ follower, passages like Jeremiah 29 that talk about the plans that God has for us. Plans to no, the, Jeremiah
0: 29 is not about the plans that God has for us. I've done this so many times on this program, I feel like I'm a broken record. Read it in context, go back and read Jeremiah 29 in context, and you'll find that those words were specifically written to the remnant. ...of Israel who were taken into captivity into Babylon. So unless you are actually one of the people who survived the Babylonian captivity, it that promise is not specifically for you.
3: Prosperous, not to harm us. Plans for hope. Plans for a future. It's that one time of the year that we really evaluate life... We think about the past year, and for many of you, 2010 represents some times where there were some achievements, and things went well, and there were some accomplishments in your life, and you're looking forward at the beginning of this year with with a lot of hope in the promise of the future. And then there are others who, for 2010, maybe for you, it was the worst year of your life. You're glad it's over, and as you look into the new year, you're just glad that what's behind is behind. Maybe you're into making New Year's resolutions, or maybe for you it's not that. You just set some goals, or, or maybe for you it's neither of those. It's just a time to evaluate. There's something about the beginning of a new year. We evaluate things. Did you know the human brain produces about 70? You know, I,
0: I, I wonder if I'm not very holy because I just didn't do any of that evaluating go, you know, this year.
3: 30,000 thoughts a day. 70,000, a few of you, a few more, some of you a little less, but about 70,000 thoughts a day are are processed, And, and this is the time of the year when many of those thoughts are simply about life. And in our thinking and in all of our evaluating, there's one thought we often try to ignore. It pops up, and it's there we try to push it back and we try not to think about it, but, but the reality of the thought we are now living, it's the thought that reminds you of the day when you discovered your life was not going to turn out quite like you thought it would. Do you remember that moment? We all have dreams that fall apart or shatter. We all have goals that haven't happened, things that just haven't worked out. It's the moment in life when plan A abruptly dies and your life in some area shifts to plan B. It can happen in the form of a sudden illness that comes out of nowhere as your life spirals into a world of hospital beds and IVs and unending tests. Or it can happen in the sudden loss of a a family member or a close friend. They're just, they're gone. Or maybe for you, your shattered dream came in the form of divorce papers and you're hurting and you're devastated. Or, Or maybe your shattered dream is different. Maybe your shattered dream, maybe the plan A that you see sort of fading away and you're wondering what plan B is going to look like is that you desperately want to be married and yet... In your life, everybody around you seems to be getting married, but not you. Or maybe for you, you're married, happily married. The two of you are are deeply in love and you get along well and you you look at your future and it's full of hope. There's just this one dream that has not become a reality and you've, you've been to all the doctors, you've been through all the tests, you're seeing the specialist, you desperately want God to give you a child, but it hasn't happened and you're being told it probably won't. Life moves from plan A to plan B for all of us in some area. Maybe your dream had to do with your education and what you poured yourself into and all of your training, and you're ready. But in this economy, nobody's hiring in your field. Or maybe you have a job, but because of the choices you made in the school you went to and how well you did, you were destined for the corner office, but you're stuck in the cubicle. Your dreams are shattered. It's those moments in life that the unspeakable happens. Those times when life suddenly seems to fall apart with no explanation. I wish those moments would come with warnings so we could prepare. People walk into this theater seven days a week, and other than Sunday mornings when C3 church is here, they come and they watch movies. And in this theater, it happens in almost every movie. There there is a point or several points when the music begins to change and the lighting shifts, and it takes on a different pace. And, And if it's a suspense movie or a drama, you're on the edge of your seat, and you're watching the character, and you just want to scream, Be careful, because the atmosphere changed. The problem with life and shattered dreams is they come out of nowhere and there's no warning through a change of music. The lighting does not change. All of a sudden, we are in the reality that plan A is dead and my life is now plan B. Everybody's walked through it. Everybody's experienced disappointment. In some area, we are all broken and desperately in need of healing. It happens because we have this, this picture of the way life should be, and everything's in the picture the, the perfect spouse, the 2.2 kids, and everything, the beautiful home, and the nice cars, and the successful. We, we, we have this picture that we begin to chase in life. We have Plan A. This is what we're after, this is our dream. But for so many, Some part of that picture, as you look at it, doesn't look like it did just a few years ago. And part of the struggle is we think God liked our picture. We assumed that because we wanted it or we desired it, that somehow God was obligated to make that happen. It messes us up when God doesn't keep our picture the way we thought it should be. It never crossed your mind that you would have cancer at 39. You never thought you would be the one fired at 47. In your wildest dreams, you you never contemplated that by 38 years old, you would be divorced twice. Twice. When you were growing up, it, you never wrapped your mind around the fact that you'd be 42 and alone and depressed. Remember the day you looked in the crib and your child was laying there making those funny faces in the morning with the smells at the other end? But you loved them anyway. And you looked into that crib, and the one thought that never entered your brain was, by the time you're 20... You'll be in prison. You look at life and the one shot we have to live it. And each day you wake up with this this gnawing inside you because you never thought the one word that would describe your marriage is mediocre.
0: Okay, notice this entire narrative that he's weaving is just kind of, it almost sounds like a victim narrative. I'm just, you just never imagined that, you know, that this was going to happen to you. It's like all some kind of a victim narrative. Yeah, if you're getting divorce papers, more than likely, uh, there's, uh, you've done, it's, I'm not saying that you're completely at fault, but how's the phrase go? It takes two to tango. It's not as if you're completely faultless.
3: Plan A is gone. Gasp. You're living Plan B. Does that mean life's over? Does that mean it's never going to be as good as what it could have been? You're frustrated. Sometimes you're angry. There are moments you feel hopeless. So what do you do? Because plan A, it's not coming back. So what do you do now? When all your dreams have slipped away, and the life you thought you'd live will never be reality, what do you do? As we begin this series, I need to tell you, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to understand all of your pain. I'm not going to tell you that I have all the answers for... No, 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 I'm not going to pretend I understand all of your pain.
0: Everything he's describing is the fruit and consequence of our sin and rebellion against God. But the way he told the story, it's as if we're I mean, we've all been blindsided. We were just walking along, minding our own business, and then, boom, we got hit upside the head by plan B, and we never saw it coming, and we're just completely
3: innocent. Right. Everything. I'm not going to say that I know what it is to walk and to live where you've walked and lived. I will tell you that I've personally experienced the uncomfortable and temporarily sometimes debilitating moments in life where plan A took its last breath and plan plan B is born. I know what it is to live through shattered dreams. And as a pastor, I've walked with so many people whose lives have seemingly fallen apart as they've experienced overwhelming loss.
0: Because of their sin...
3: I've seen the faces when I walked, for example, a few years ago into the hospital room and looked in the face of Ryan, the father, and Caroline, the mother, holding the lifeless body of their little baby.
0: Which is a consequence of our
3: sin. Who was born and then died. Plan A is gone forever. And there is some... There's some moments in life where honestly, I mean, I know Jesus and I love him deeply and I desperately need him and I'm, I'm a pastor, but I have to tell you, there there's some moments in life, there are no words. So I'm not pretending to be an expert. You and I have lived days that were filled with unanswered Questions. And in those questions, the hardest question is not, does God exist? There's plenty of evidence for that. That's not the hard question. Our struggle is the reality that God does exist, yet at the same time, so does so much intense pain and suffering.
0: And all of that is a consequence of our sins. We're the perps. How?
3: How is it ever okay if there's a loving God for plan A to die. You know,
0: in the past, people would ask more profound questions like, if, if God is loving and good, then how is there evil in the world? Apparently, now it's, if God is loving and good, then how come my plans for my life aren't happening? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: man. How? do you find life and hope and even the possibility of something better in plan B? So I'm not going to make any grand promises. I'm going to simply say to you that as we walk through this series, plan B, we will encounter people in Scripture whose lives have abruptly shifted to plan B. People who, throughout the ages, God put in the scriptures about their shattered dreams, and we're going to meet them.
0: Seriously, the Bible's full of people with shattered dreams and their plan
3: Bs. Oh man! And we won't find many easy answers, but we will in these snapshots of people facing some of the things that you and I have faced. We will find encouragement, and we will find hope and the ability to deal with and overcome our shattered dreams. A kind of hope that brings healing. Take these broken wings and learn to fly again. Yeah. There's this incredible story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. If, if you have your Bible turned...
0: now. flip over there, 1 Samuel 21.
3: Turn there. If not, the verses will be on the screen. It's a story of something that happened in the life of David. A time when for David, things were not turning out the way they should. And, and I got to tell you this morning, as we launch into this... This morning, we're going to look at when when Plan A dies and when Plan B is born, what not to do. I I, I want to help us this morning, help you and help me avoid some pitfalls that, that people often fall into because I have no idea what 2011 is going to look like for you. But chances are strong that for many of you, something will die, something will fade, something will be shattered. And when we stand here in this room together a year from now, life will be different. But you can make it worse. How do you avoid that? So this morning, I really want to talk about what not to do.
0: When Why do I feel like we're going to hear a whole lot of law and like zero gospel?
3: When this shift takes place. You know the story of David if you've been in church. If not, he, he was this shepherd boy, which is really a, a nobody. There's no career ladder to climb in that job. It's a dead-end job. He is a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of a bunch of kids, and he's just minding his own business, a nobody watching sheep. And one day this guy, Samuel, comes, and he says, hey, I, 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 God has sent me, and I, I'm, I'm going to be showing or revealing. God's going to reveal who the new king of Israel is going to be. And I need to see all your kids. And and David's father doesn't even think enough of him to call him in from the field. So Samuel looks at the other kids. He's like, no, 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 none of them. David shows up and Samuel's... Listen how he tells this story. He's like, that's the guy. He's going to be the king. He's like, what? (laughs) He watches sheep. No qualifications. He watches sheep. He's
0: not really reading the text, by the way. This is all his... Uh rather gratuitous gratuitous editorializing on the on a paraphrase summary of the story that he's telling to make his point, not what the biblical text teaches.
3: What are we gonna do? David's gonna be king. I mean what would you do if you'd just been told you're gonna be king? What does David do? He goes back to watching sheep sometimes god will birth this dream where nothing
0: changes in our reality so what do you see the connection he's allegorizing this text now he hasn't really read the text he just gave us his own synopsis of it and what he thinks it's really about and now he's telling the story in such a way that see david was anointed the king of israel why was he anointed the king of israel Well, because Saul, even though he was the king of Israel, continued to disobey God and did things that he wasn't supposed to do. God said, I've had enough. I'm taking the kingship away from you and your family, and I'm going to give it to another. So God sends the apostle Samuel out to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, And eventually, David is chosen, as God says, this is the guy who I want to be king, and he becomes the anointed king of Israel. Now, here's the problem. Um, There was already a king on the throne. Um, This is a problem. Um, And the reason why this is a problem is because this is not normally how things go. You don't have two anointed kings. Usually, one would kill the other. Okay, In a very similar way, this points us to Christ, who at the moment is the reigning, or, you know, is the king of the universe, if you would, okay? The the now and not yet, yet he hasn't come and resolved anything. He's been given the kingdom, but... At the moment, not everything is done according to his will, if you get what I'm saying here. So there's a shadow there in the Old Testament that points us to Christ in the New Testament and the present reality. Okay, So David spends quite a bit of time as the anointed king of Israel, and never once does he take Saul's life. Twice God puts Saul into his hands, and David, if he wanted to, could have killed Saul. But David refused to kill the anointed king of Israel, left that to be decided by God himself. Talk about a man of faith. But what he's doing, he's allegorizing the story. See, what happened is is that God gave David a dream for his life. Yeah, see, the dream for David's life is he said, you're going to be the king of Israel. And so that was planned. Yeah, see, there's the dream. But then what happened is is that all these things came along and kind of got in the way of the dream. And so the dream never seemed to be happening. And I'm sure poor David, he just felt like, well, maybe that wasn't really God's dream for my life. And see in the similar way God has all these dreams for you too. You know, he may not want you to be a king, but I'm sure he wants you to be the president. He may not want you to be the king, but he probably wants you to be some important mover or shaker in the world. And I know this is the dream that he's laid on your heart. And see now you're having all of these little problems that have come along that seem to be getting in the way of of you achieving this dream that God has laid on your heart. This is not how you read the text. And First Samuel is not about your dream. First Samuel is about what God did in history to the king of Israel. There were two at the time. And all of this is in the storyline and the genetic line of the Messiah, the promised one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And as the story continues, you find out that Jesus, it is said, not that he's going to reign on the throne of his father Solomon or Jehoiakim or Hezekiah. No, it is said that Jesus is going to reign on the throne of his father David forever. And so in the story of David, we see a clear type of Christ, a clear shadow that points us to Jesus. This, this, David's story isn't about you, and it isn't about your dreams. The story of David truly is the story of Christ. And when you take the time to compare David's story to Jesus' story, sans David's sin, because David, like you and I, was a sinner who needed a Savior. But even David knew that his greater son would be his Lord, because in the Psalms, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Even David knew that his greater son who would come would be none other than God in human flesh. The story of David points us to Christ. Byron Bledsoe is so far off the mark here that he's telling the story of David as if it's your story. It's not. The story of David is not your story. It's the story
3: of Jesus. In the moment, we go back to doing exactly what we were doing before. There's just a whisper of something for the future. And we wonder about it, and we question, and we think, could, could that be real? Because Israel already has a king, Saul, and he has a son, Jonathan, who's supposed to be the next king, and really? That guy's just old and delusional, like Daryl sometimes. I mean, he just it just happens when you get older. I, I, I can't help it. And so we find those moments in life, and David's thinking, no, "I can't be reality. And one day his dad says, hey, David, I-, I want you to go to the battlefield. because When did David, when it, where in the scripture does it
0: ever say that David said, you yeah, know, it can't be real. There's no way I'm going to be king. Israel's at
3: war, and they're fighting the Philistines. I want you to go, and I want you to take some, your brothers some lunch, and I want you to just, just check on them and see how they're doing, make sure they're okay. And David shows up to the battlefield, and nobody's fighting. And the Philistines, the enemy, they, they have this guy, Goliath, who's a giant of a man. And he comes out each day, and he mocks the Israelites, and he, he makes fun of them. And his challenge is this. You just send one person to fight me, and whoever wins, we'll call that the battle. The, that side wins. Nobody else has to die. Go ahead, and send somebody out, and nobody will go. They're all afraid. So David strolls in, this unqualified, young, seemingly ignorant, stupid shepherd boy, just bringing lunch. He, he's the lunch boy, the water boy. That's all he's doing. And he sees that nobody's fighting, and it infuriates him. He says, I'll, I'll go. And so David walks out there, and he meets Goliath, who's laughing at him while he's coming. And with a slingshot and a rock, he kills him. Goliath falls. Now, what's interesting, when you read Scripture, the Bible says that David then goes over to Goliath and takes Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off. Why? He's already dead. I mean, sometimes Scripture's just cool like that, cuts his head off. I mean, he just cuts it off. Maybe
0: it had something to do with letting the Philistine armies know that their champion was dead. Hard to think for a second that maybe he's still alive when his head is separated from his shoulders.
3: No point to that. The man's dead. Or or is there a point? Is there a reason? David gets all this fame and all this attention. People go nuts. And even King Saul recognizes, man, David, he is special. He commends him. And all of a sudden, David begins to think, maybe, Maybe Samuel, maybe there was something to it.
0: The text never says that at that point that maybe David went, oh, Maybe when Samuel anointed me, he was telling me the truth. Oh, maybe God's big dream for my life is that I do become the king. Oh, no, that's not what the text says at all.
3: I mean, who would have ever thought a shepherd boy could kill a giant I mean, with a slingshot? Maybe. Maybe God is going to do something unique. Maybe this dream can become reality. Then King Saul says, David, I want you to marry my daughter. And David thinks, I'm in. I'm the next king. This is done. Everything seems to be lining up. Life seems to be. Where does the text say any of that? Be somehow coming in line with this dream being fulfilled. He's going to be the king. It's going to happen. You've been there. You had a dream. Maybe you didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it or trying to figure it out. You were just hoping that maybe this would be the one, and you would get married, or maybe the promotion would somehow be yours, or maybe the next time you went to the doctor, the news would be better. And all of a sudden, the circumstances they they begin to line up. Maybe this is going to happen out of. <laughs>
0: I mean, did you hear the comparison? You thought maybe this time I'm going to get married. Like you getting married is like even remotely on par with David being the anointed king of Israel. Because, you know, those two are like so close that you could barely tell the difference between the two of them. Or that you're finally going to get that job because you getting the job is like the same thing as David being the anointed king of Israel.
3: Give me a break nowhere she says yes and fully commits to you the the doctor walks in and says you know what the test results have changed and it looks like there is a good deal of hope your boss says the owners behind closed doors they're dropping your name for this next job your spouse you've been praying you've been begging god and they agree to marriage counseling it looks like things are turning around and this dream might be real
0: notice by somehow taking the story of david and making it about you you trivialize the whole story and you miss the real significance. The story is about Christ. David had faith in Christ.
3: And then then something changes. Saul begins to treat David differently. It doesn't seem right. Things are kind of off. David can't fully figure it out. Then one day, David and Saul are in the same place, and Saul picks up a spear, and he goes, Jerry Springer on David. He throws it at him. I don't know if anybody's ever thrown a spear at you, but that's a clue. They don't like you anymore. (laughs) And David has this light bulb moment where, oh, now it makes it. He can't stand me. And Jonathan, Saul's son, Comes to David, they're close friends, and says, hey, my dad, King Saul, he hates you. He wants you dead. You better take off. And the dream that looked like it was beginning to become reality dies abruptly. He freaks out because the dream is slipping away.
0: Really, where in the book of Samuel does it say that David was freaking out because the dream was slipping away? One verse would do.
3: He doesn't know what else to do. He feels like, God, God must not be with me. Which verse says that? Maybe God's even been toying with me. He allowed me to experience my hope increasing, and it looked like... Where does it say that? Things were coming together, and now it's not happening. It's all beginning to slip away. Where's God? Why has he left me? And David begins to panic, and he turns his back on God and runs. What?
0: So David panicked. He turned his back on God and then ran. King Saul was trying to kill him. How is running for your life turning your back on God?
3: Because the truth is, the only thing more devastating in life than plan A dying is when it looks like plan A is making a rebound, and then it dies. Unbelievable. David flees. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. David went to Nob great place to go. You ought to visit sometime. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And so David panics. He's running from God. So he falls into this position of he's going to lie and try to manipulate the situation. David answered to him, elect the priest. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As far as my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain, pla- yeah, a certain, yeah, a certain place they're supposed to meet me. Uh, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. And when Ahimelech gives him the bread, now this bread is consecrated. It's set aside, set apart only for God's priest, but David doesn't care. Because David has come to the place that we can come to when dreams begin to shatter. Where he is now abandoning the principles of God in order to try to maintain the blessing of God.
0: Really, where does it say that in the text? Where does it? You're totally reading that in. It doesn't say it anywhere in the text. Not one place. Unbelievable. What Bible are you
3: reading, sir? You've been there. You had these things in your life, these blessings, these dreams, and you started to feel them slipping away. So you were tempted to, and maybe sometimes you did. I know sometimes I have. You started abandoning the principles of God in order to try to control and manipulate things so you could keep the blessings of God. It's exactly what David's doing. God, I want your blessings financially, but in this economy? I mean, I I know what scripture says about Oh, here com- here comes the law. Here it comes, ready. God, as a Christ follower, I'm to bring the first 10% to you, but in this economy, the way things are wheels off, I mean, I got to pay for my kids' education, and I I, got to make sure I've got retirement, and I got to keep the iPhone. I got to make sure I've got all these things in place, so God, I'm not going to be able to do what you say. I'm going to abandon your principles because I want to maintain your blessings, and and you haven't done a very good job, so I'm going to take control, Or, or maybe you, it's not financially. Maybe you, it's in your marriage. The dream begins to shatter, and things are different, and there's a different vibe in your house, and the atmosphere has changed, and she or he doesn't seem to feel the same about you. And you see it fading, and it's beginning to slip away, and this is one plan A that you don't know how you'll live without. So you abandon the principles of Scripture. They say love keeps no record of wrongs. You abandon the principles of Scripture that say you're to be forgiving and kind. You abandon the principles of Scripture to try to maintain the blessing God gave you, which was the marriage, and you seize control, and you begin demanding things of your spouse, and you're trying to force someone to change that only God can change, but you're abandoning his principles trying to keep his blessing. Or maybe it's with your children. You you know the Scripture says fathers do not exasperate your children, but they just frustrate you so much. And as they grow older, you view their failures, failures as some kind of personal indictment against you. So you abandon what the scriptures say about being a parent and to train up a child in the way they go because you want to try to keep your reputation and the appearance that you've got it together and there's just something wrong with your kid. Or maybe you've got to have a certain grade on that test, or you lose your scholarship. You will abandon the principles of Scripture if you're not careful that talk about what it is to live with integrity and how it is to be honorable in life. And rather than busting your tail studying, you'll just find the shortcut and figure out a way to cheat. You'll abandon the principles of Scripture to try to maintain the blessing. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. And the priest replied... David, remember he cut off Goliath's head with a sword? What what was the point? The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the epod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword but that one. This is is the point where the music changes.
0: Okay, I'm going to pause right there. We're going to read this in context. If you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 1. Now what just so you know what previously happened in chapter 20, um you have David fleeing for his life uh, and uh you know and Jonathan, you know, the son of Saul who was like David's best friend. They were like Mutt and Jeff, okay? Peanut butter and jelly. These two those two were close. Um you know, them having a tearful goodbye and then Jonathan coming to the realization That his own father has it out for David in such a way that he's going to have David murdered and killed, and so David is fleeing for his life, and um, and you know maybe I should back up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter twenty, verse eighteen. I'll pick up kind of in the middle of this. They come up with a sign, um, and what will happen is, in fact, let me let me let me read it. So Jonathan and David, they're coming up with a sign as to how uh, Jonathan will communicate to David whether or not Saul has it out for him, like for death. And so we'll go over there. 1 Samuel 20, verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because of your your seat will be empty. So on the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself uh, uh, when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a young man saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you. There is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. Okay. Now notice what happened is, is that you know if you go back and you read this story in its full context you see what's going on here is that david thinks that saul has it out for him he talks with jonathan jonathan doesn't want to believe it he wants to test to see it david's going to hide and then they've come up with a system of of determining whether or not it's safe for david to come back or not and in their way of thinking david isn't being sinful and running away in this case What they're saying is is that if I go and, and I find out, hey, it's not safe, then it's the Lord who's sending you away. Verse 22, "'But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever.'" So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean." But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Do you think that David had any reason to flee here that may have been justifiable? <clears throat> I just asked that rhetorically. So then Jonathan answered uh, Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow, arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And (sighs) so sad. This is the last time these two men see each other alive. Jonathan will never see David alive. Because Jonathan is going to die with his father. (sighs) So Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew not nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap. And he fell on his face to the ground. And bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. David wasn't taking matters into his own hands, and David was not at all disobeying God and fleeing. Both he and Jonathan knew that it was God's will for him to flee, lest David die and he be murdered by the hand of Saul. Now we continue. Chapter 21. So then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now, is it true that David is telling a lie here? Yes, he is. He is not telling the truth. And yet, never once is David condemned for this. In the world we live in, sometimes we are put into a catch-22 situation where the only thing to do is to choose the lesser of two sins. That's kind of the situation he was in. Think of it this way. If you, a devout Christian, were living in Nazi Germany, and you were hiding Jews in your attic, and you were they were hiding up there, and the Nazi Gestapo came and knocked on your door and said, Let us in! Let us in! We have heard you have Jews in your attic. Do you have any Jews in your attic? The answer is no. I don't have any Jews in my attic. What are you smoking? Why would I do such a thing? And you're saying, but you're lying to them. Right. Right. I would lie to the face of a Nazi Gestapo agent any day rather than let them murder somebody in cold blood. This is this kind of situation that's going on here in the text. Ahimelech is innocent. He's a priest. He's the high priest of God. He's doing his duty before God. He does not need to be wrapped up or embroiled in, or brought into the affairs that are going on between Saul and David. Because to bring him into it is to risk his death. And sadly, what David has done here ultimately will lead to Ahimelech's death. Sad but true. And never once is David condemned for this. Never once is this pointed to in Scripture as David doing something wrong. This is simply a matter of the results of the sin that we've brought into the world. At times, our sinfulness makes it so that the only way forward is for us to choose the lesser of two evils. Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and he said to him, Why are you alone? No one is with you. David said to him, like the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread. But there is holy bread. And if the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Well, truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it. If, you, if, if you'll if you take that, take it, for, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. And when Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? They did not sing to one another of him in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So ultimately, by the way, as you read in the story, Ahimelech will be murdered. Held responsible for even helping out David in this little way. By the way, this little event here, David eating the consecrated bread jesus recalls this story in his teaching in 3 of the gospels matthew mark and luke in the account written in the book of matthew we read matthew chapter 12 verse 1 now at that time jesus went through the grain fields on the sabbath his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat but the pharisees when they saw it they said to him look your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the ha- on the ha- on the sabbath Quote, harvesting. So he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath but are guiltless? I tell you, somebody greater than the temple is here, and if you had not known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's important to note that Jesus here doesn't even condemn David and say that what he did is wrong. He acknowledges the fact that David, it was unlawful for him to eat the bread of presence. And yet at the same time, David is not condemned. His need was more important. Now that you know the story better, you'll be way more equipped to hear how Byron Bledsoe massacres this story. Because the story's not about you. This story ultimately is about Christ.
3: This is the moment. David, when you see that sword, it should be a reminder of the grace of God. It should be a reminder. You think plan A was for a shepherd boy back from home, not one of the warriors to kill Goliath? This should be the reminder that when life shifts from plan A to plan B, God is still fully possible and can blow your mind. This is the reminder that you don't have to seize control. You don't have to run. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to lie. This is a moment of grace planted in David's run from God. It's one of those moments because God will, because he loves you, if you're a Christ follower, when you begin to turn from him because your dreams are shattering, when you abandon the principles of God to try to maintain the blessing of God, when you bolt down that road, God will place in your path, as you're running from him, markers of grace, reminders of who he really is. When David saw that sword, it should have reminded him that God is faithful. That sword was an icon. David wasn't running from God. icon on display for all of the children of Israel to remind them of God's faithfulness. God's on your side. You don't have to lie. You don't have to manipulate. If God desires you to be king, you're going to be king. That's what it stood for. David should have paused, but he misses it. He just says, There's no sword like that one. Give it to me. He's panicking and he's running. And I've done that far too often. Moments when something begins to fade, and I I seize control and try to figure it out because it's not that God can't, He's just probably too busy. And he gave me these gifts, and he gave me certain abilities. And so maybe, maybe God just, God, I, I got this. You, you handle what's happened in other places, deal with kids that have cholera and are up all night, whatever. You, you, you take care of that. I, I got this. It's like when you desperately need God to work in your life, and your world has been turned upside down. You walk through that family room every day on your way to the kitchen to grab some breakfast on your way out the door to either try to find a job again or go to a job you can't stand that feels like a dead end. And each day you walk through that family room, there's that family Bible on the shelf. Rather than being thankful for the daily bread that
0: God has provided, even in your dead end job. Listen to what this guy... The attitude is, is that I can't stand this job. This is not the grand vision that I had for my life that I...
3: Unbelievable. ...and you just, you just walk by. You just walk by. It's a reminder of the grace of God. It, it has in it a, a whole lot of answers from God. The scriptures say that that book is, is living and powerful and has the ability to bring life, but, but you, just, you just walk by. What, what should be a moment where you pause and recognize what's in front of you, you ignore. Or the lady that works next to you says to you, on a regular basis, can, can I pray for you somehow? And your answer is always, nah, I'm cool. It's, it's cool. I'm not. Nah. It's a marker of grace. And God, in little subtle ways, trying to say to you, I'm here. I got this if you'll let me. I've got something for you. I'm fully aware of Plan A's gone. I, I was at the funeral. I understand you're living Plan B. You've seen what you could do with plan A. Why don't you pause long enough to see what I can do with plan B? David goes to Gath. He's running from Saul. And in Gath, he realizes, I'm a hero in Israel. The king of Gath is probably going to kill me. I'm not any safer here. I'll act like I'm flipping insane, and maybe the king won't kill me. And he does that. Yes, he
0: does. And nowhere is he condemned for it. That's the funny thing, isn't it?
3: The king of Gath comes and David's acting so wigged out, the king says, He's crazy, let him go, don't worry about it. Just more manipulation, more lying, more trying to seize control. What do you do in your life? What's your MO? What's your go to when you feel like a dream is, is slipping away? Do you lie or manipulate like David did? Do you try to seize control? Maybe you reach for the bottle or you down a pill. What is it you do when you feel like the dream is slipping away?
0: This sto- the story of First Samuel and David and all of this stuff is not about
3: you. Maybe your deal is you just retaliate. Somebody hurts you and you're going to hurt them back. Saul finds out that David's been in Nob, and so Saul goes there with some men, and he asks Ahimelech, the priest, has David been here? And Ahimelech says, yeah, he's been here, and of course I helped him. He's your son-in-law, and he's on a secret mission of yours. And Saul says, no, he's not. And Saul was so furious that he orders Ahimelech and the other 85 priests to be slaughtered along with their families, and they kill them. One guy gets away, Ahimelech's son, and he finds David, and he says, You're not going to believe what happened because you showed up at Nob, because you manipulated my dad, because you lied to my dad. Saul came and he killed everybody in their families. The entire town of Nob is gone. And David wakes up. Ah, if he could have woken up when he saw the sword. But now he wakes up and he says in verse 22, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. That's all he says in that moment something changed inside David. For the rest of his life, he will carry the memory that he is responsible because of his actions, because of his lying, because of his manipulation for harm coming to others. Hundreds of people were slaughtered. And in that moment, he wakes up and he realizes something that you and I desperately need to realize at the beginning of this year. He realizes my way isn't working. My way isn't working.
0: What verse does David say that again there in 1 Samuel? Which which of the verses does David say, my way is not working?
3: When it becomes apparent that your dream is not going to come true. I mean, because if
0: David realized my way isn't working, then shouldn't he have just gone back and let Saul murder him?
3: What do you do? When you realize in that moment, it's not time to try to control and manipulate things. You need to trust God even more. You need to lean into God even more. When your dreams are not happening and life is not turning out the way you thought it should, it does not mean that life is spinning out of control. It just means that you're not in control. Because there's a God, life is never spinning out of control. You're just not in control. And I'm not in control. And often we don't like the way God is choosing to let things happen. Part of our problem is we begin to feel isolated. We begin to feel like we're all alone. We begin to feel like David and Nob or Gath where I, everybody's against me and I'm going to be in serious trouble and somebody's going to kill me. Somebody's that. We, we begin to feel like we're the only ones. But the reality is everybody has experienced a dream dying. Everybody has had something in their life.
0: That story is not about David having his dream die.
3: Their life shattered. If you've never had a bad moment, you've never walked through a bad day, you've never had a dream shattered, raise your hand. And if you raise your hand, be prepared to walk on this platform and finish the message. I will sit down. Because I've had the moments. You're not alone. Everybody has walked.
0: Jesus didn't die on the cross so that your dreams could survive. The reason your dreams get shattered is because you are a sinner. And the good news is that Christ died for your sins.
3: Walk through plan A's death. And everybody wakes up in some area of life, some in many areas, to living plan B. There will be moments when our dreams slip away. In that moment, don't try to control what you were never intended to control. And don't abandon the principles of God trying to make the blessings of God happen because your way, my way will not.
0: David didn't do any of that.
3: Not work. You've seen what you can do with Plan A. What if. Just because God is God and he's crazy in love with you, what if you could see clearly for a moment through the pain and through the hurt and through the disappointment, what if you could grasp the fact? What if I could begin to understand God can do so much more with plan B than I could ever do with plan A? What if plan B, because of grace, is not a reflection of your failures What if God is right in the middle of plan B, ready and willing to create a future that will blow your mind, a future where you love God? Is this the big Christian hope?
0: Where was the Apostle Peter's plan B when he was being nailed upside down to a cross? Where was the Apostle Paul's big plan B while he was sticking his head on the block, getting ready for it to be cut off.
3: God, and you love others, and you experience the birth of dreams that only God could give birth to. Would you pray with me this morning?
0: No, I'm not letting you pray. So you heard something that sounded like biblical preaching, but it wasn't. Why wasn't it? The reason why it wasn't is because the that biblical story isn't about you or me or our dreams or anything of the sort. He allegorized it and stuck stuff in there that just doesn't belong. Why? Because the story's not about you, and it's not about your dreams. That story is about God and Christ and what God and Christ were doing to redeem the world who the bloodline of the Messiah, which passed through King David, who, according to the scriptures, was a man after God's own heart. And in, in all things except for the murder of Uriah the Hittite and the adultery with Bathsheba, according to scriptures, he was pretty much guiltless except for that. Nowhere is David condemned. eating the bread of the presence, taking the sword of Goliath, or even not telling the whole truth to Ahimelech. He's not condemned, although when he finds out that Ahimelech and those priests were murdered, he does take the blame. See, that wasn't about his dreams dying. That's the story of an anointed king of Israel who was not yet the reigning king. And the story prefigures and is a shadow of the story of Jesus Christ and points us to him, our great God and Savior, to Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. By making the story about you, you miss the whole Point. I need to remind you all: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons: one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, at com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there pirate christian until next week may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins sins yes amen